AFF on Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast is boarding. Step on board for the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. Your captain, Matt Graham, now invites you to sit back, relax and enjoy the episode. G'day and welcome to episode 69 of AFF On Air. It's Saturday the 18th of September 2021. On previous episodes of this podcast, we've spent a lot of time talking about the difficulty of getting back to Australia from overseas during the pandemic. Navigating the current system is clearly a nightmare for travellers, but today we'll get an airline's perspective. Later in the episode, Carl Schubert from Singapore Airlines will join me to talk about the challenges that Singapore Airlines has faced operating into Australia over the past 18 months, why the airline has just had to cancel 88 flights into Australia next month, and how Singapore Airlines is preparing to restore capacity once the Australian government reopens the international border. That interview is coming up shortly, but first, let's begin with a roundup of the latest Australian airline and frequent flyer news from the past fortnight. And after Qantas announced its plans to resume international flights in mid-December, Hawaiian Airlines and Air Canada have now also started selling tickets for travel to and from Australia from the 17th of December. But it's not yet clear when exactly the government will remove the outbound travel ban and relax inbound quarantine requirements and arrival caps for vaccinated travellers coming into the country. As it happens, the 17th of December this year is when the Australian government's current uh, human biosecurity emergency period, which is also known as the travel ban, is due to end. But this is really just an arbitrary day, which is three months after the last three-month extension was due to expire. And the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, has already extended the international travel ban six times in a row, each time by three months. Qantas CEO Alan Joyce said last month that his airline is in regular discussions with the Australian government and that the government agrees that Qantas's broad assumptions on uh, when they can restart international travel are reasonable. But Alan Joyce admitted that the airline's plan to restart international flights relies on decisions by the Australian government, which they have no control over, and that the government doesn't have a crystal ball either. Joyce says that his airline can adjust their plans if circumstances change, which they have already had to do several times during the pandemic. But in the meantime, Qantas and other airlines are happily selling tickets in the hope that international travel might once again be possible by mid-December. Now, you can find a list of airlines that are currently flying to Australia and airlines that are also shortly planning to resume flights to Australia in my article from last Thursday, which is called International Flights on Sale for December 2021, Will They Fly? And that's on our website and also linked in the episode notes. In this article, you can also see which airlines will refund flights that they cancel. One aspect of reopening the borders in Phase C of the National Cabinet's four-phase plan is the ability for vaccinated travellers returning from low- to medium-risk countries into Australia to quarantine at home instead of in hotels, which have limited capacity. And there's some good news on this front. The South Australian home quarantine trial is ongoing, and the New South Wales government yesterday announced that it too will begin a home quarantine trial next month for around 175 vaccinated Australians returning from overseas who will need to stay at home for seven days instead of the current 14 days spent in a hotel. That pilot program will run for four weeks. Meanwhile, Tasmania has just announced a trial of 14-day home quarantine for fully vaccinated Tasmanian residents returning from regional New South Wales. 
And yesterday, the New Zealand government announced that it will extend the pause on flights from Australia to New Zealand for at least another eight weeks due to the ongoing outbreak of the Delta strain in parts of Australia. The trans-Tasman bubble is currently suspended in both directions, although the Australian government could relax restrictions on travel from New Zealand within a few weeks once the current lockdown in Auckland is over. With most Australians unable to travel overseas for the past 18 months, except for a short time to New Zealand, it's estimated that around 2.6 million Australians have let their passports expire since the beginning of the pandemic and haven't yet renewed them. Last week, Trade and Tourism Minister Dan Tehan warned that the government is now expecting a surge in demand for new passport applications and renewals when the reopening of Australia's international border is formally announced, and this could lead to long waiting times for passports. It normally takes around three weeks for an Australian passport application or renewal to be processed, although at the moment with demand really quite low, it's only taking a few days. So if you are planning to travel overseas in the next six to nine months um, and your passport's expired, you might want to get in now. Virgin Australia's Velocity Frequent Flyer program has announced a raft of new status extensions for its current silver, gold and platinum members. Velocity Gold and Platinum members who had received an extension previously until September 2022 as part of last year's Status Rewards program will now receive another extension which will take them through to February of 2023. And any other current silver, gold or platinum members with a current velocity status review date between the 30th of September this year and the 30th of April next year will receive an extra eight months at their current level. There are no extensions, though, being offered to new velocity gold members who took advantage of last year's gold status match. In addition, Velocity Frequent Flyer is increasing the number of status credits that members can earn on all Virgin Australia domestic flights for six months for travel that's taken between October 2021 and the end of March 2022. This also includes the ability to earn status credits on Velocity reward seat bookings for the first time. And I'll have more to say about this offer in the next episode of this podcast in two weeks' time. Velocity Frequent Flyer also gave an update yesterday on international reward seat bookings, which have been unavailable ever since Virgin Australia went into voluntary administration in April 2020. Even though Virgin came out of administration late last year, and pretty much every other airline in the world is currently allowing their frequent flyers to redeem points to fly with partner airlines, Velocity still to this day continues to block international and partner airline rewards. The reinstatement of international redemption bookings in the near future is welcome news, although there's still no specific time frame on when this is going to occur, and it's still not clear yet which airlines Velocity members will be able to use their points to fly with once borders reopen. But one current Virgin partner airline that definitely won't be available is Alitalia. That's because Alitalia will cease to exist from the 14th of October. Italy's former flag carrier is being replaced by a brand new airline called ITA, spelled I-T-A, which stands for Italia Trasporto Aereo. Now, it's not yet clear will ha- what will happen, though, to Alitalia's Mila Miglia f- uh, loyalty program, which is currently on sale in an open tender process, or whether ITA will take Alitalia's spot in the SkyTeam Alliance. Hilton has become the first major hotel chain to give its loyalty program members a second 12-month status extension. All current Hilton Honours Silver, Gold and Diamond members will now receive another extension on their status, which will now be valid until at least March 2023. 
Hilton will also reduce the number of knights, stays or base points that members will need to earn in 2022 in order to renew their status for 2023 or beyond by 30%. And any credit for knights that were already stayed at Hilton Hotels in 2021 will roll over to the next year. Other hotel loyalty programs are expected to follow with similar announcements. A cause loyalty program has made a minor but welcome change to its points expiration policy. Previously, a core all points would expire if a member did not stay at a participating a core hotel at least once every year. But from this week, any points earned by an Accor All member from any source, not just hotel stays, will now count as activity and keep the member's points balance alive for another year. And speaking of points expiration, Qantas frequent flyer members are now being reminded to ensure they maintain activity in their accounts to prevent their points from expiring. Qantas frequent flyer points expire if you do not earn or redeem at least one new Qantas point or status credit every 18 months. We are now, as it happens, 18 months into the pandemic. So if you haven't earned or used any Qantas points since the start of COVID, you might really want to look into that soon. And if you have a Qantas Business Rewards account, don't forget about that either. Those points will also expire after 18 months of account inactivity. And to maintain activity in your Qantas Business Rewards account, you would need to earn or transfer out at least one new point every 18 months. Other frequent flyer programs where points also expire after 18 months of account inactivity include Etihad Guest, American Airlines Advantage, Air Canada Aeroplan, and the Cathay Pacific Asia Miles program. While much of New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT unfortunately remains in lockdown, airlines have been redirecting planes over to the other five states and territories and launching some creative new routes. Over the past fortnight, Virgin has launched new flights from Adelaide to Darwin, Cairns and Launceston. Qantas has launched a new flight from Adelaide to Townsville. And Virgin has just announced that it will fly three times a week from Launceston to Perth over the summer. Considering how risky it has become to transit via other states when flying around Australia at the moment, that direct connection between Tasmania and Western Australia, even though this flight is unlikely to happen under normal circumstances, may actually do quite well over summer, as Qantas's uh, Perth to Hobart flight has been doing. Jetstar has increased the amount of ancillary revenue it earns on average from every passenger by 33% during the pandemic. Ancillary revenue comes from selling extras on top of the base fare, such as checked baggage, food, seat selection, bundles, and products like Jetstar's new fare credit add-on, which lets customers cancel their Jetstar booking for any reason and receive a credit voucher. And finally, Marriott Hotels has launched its own competition to reward vaccinated Australians. Any Australian over 18 who's received both doses of a COVID-19 vaccine can go in the draw to win one of 41 Ultimate Marriott Bonvoy packages, which include free nights of hotel accommodation at Marriott hotels across Australia, New Zealand, New Caledonia and Fiji. The competition closes on the 30th of November. That's what's making news on australianfrequentflyer.com.au this fortnight. You can stay up to date between podcasts by subscribing to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette to get the latest Frequent Flyer news straight to your inbox for free every Monday and Thursday morning.
Turn your bills into business class with the SNP app. Whether it's an ATO bill, rates, utilities, phone, school fees, body corporate or any of the other 60,000 plus bills with a BPAY biller code on it, you can pay it with SNP and earn full frequent flyer points for your credit card spend. You can use your Visa, MasterCard or American Express to pay bills with the SNP app and pay just a 1.5% processing fee including GST. There are no other hidden fees. The 1.5% processing fee even applies for American Express payments. Now that's just 0.05% more than the ATO's card payment surcharge for Amex. And with SNP, you'll earn points on your Amex card at the full everyday spend rate and not the reduced rate that you'd normally get at the tax office. SNP also has some convenient features. You can connect your emails to the SNP app and have your billers automatically added to the app when they arrive in your inbox. You'll then get a handy push notification when your bill's ready for payment. You can pay the bill on the spot, schedule it for later, set up an instalment plan or create a recurring payment. And you can even use Apple Pay or Google Pay. So it's no surprise why SNP has processed more than $150 million worth of bill payments and counting. It really is the easiest and most rewarding way to pay your bills. With tax time in front of us now, there's never been a better time to try SNP. Simply download the free SNP app on your mobile device and enter the code AFF10 on sign up for $10 off your first bill payment. That's SNP with two I's, S-N-I-I-P. Flying internationally to or from Australia over the past 18 months has obviously been challenging for passengers, but what about for the airlines trying to maintain those vital air services into Australia? Well, joining me now on the AFF On Air podcast to give an airline's perspective is Carl Schubert, the Public Relations Manager for Singapore Airlines in the Southwest Pacific. Welcome, Carl. Hey, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us. So, Carl, since April 2020, Singapore Airlines has operated over 3,600 passenger flights into Australia, bringing back around 65,000 people, and that doesn't include Scoot either, which is Singapore's low-cost carrier, which has also brought back 5,000 people. Singapore Airlines has also operated over 1,100 passenger aircraft flights carrying only cargo and around 1,500 freighter-only flights, in addition to the flights supported by the government's international freight assistance mechanism. So Singapore Airlines has been doing quite a lot of flying into Australia during this time, but clearly that hasn't been without its challenges, though. So what have been the biggest challenges for Singapore Airlines operating to Australia over the past 18 months? It's, uh, I think the, the numerous jurisdictional requirements uh, that we, we faced operating into Australia. Australia is one country, but uh, when we operate into, we've been operating to about eight or nine uh, different ports into Australia over the last 18 months, Canberra, Darwin, Cairns, uh, Toowoomba, and then of course the five major ports in Adelaide, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. And, and each one of those has a, a different jurisdictional requirement, whether it's the uh, the health authority within a particular state uh, wanting to um, classify arriving passengers and crew in a particular way versus another state, whether it's the way that the international arrival caps are, are managed, whether it's a, a, a hard daily cap, whether it's a rolling weekly cap where we're allowed to say, you know, go plus or minus five or ten on a particular flight as long as we don't go over the, the weekly allocation. Um, that, that has been incredibly challenging. And, and I know, you know, a, a lot of our teams have been spending a lot of time making sure that, that we're all across uh, the very dynamic situation within Australia in terms of how things are operating, how things are managed and what we have to adhere to uh, when we fly in. But when you read back those figures to me, I've been looking at those figures like f- quite a lot over the last couple yeah. of weeks. Um, and 
you know, it's it pales in comparison, obviously, to, to what would be a, a pre-COVID normal operating environment. But I think it goes to show the level of commitment uh, and dedication that we've had to the Australian market uh, over the last 18 months in incredibly trying circumstances. And important to note that we've operated all of those flights, uh, cargo and, and passengers, supported 100,000 tonnes worth of cargo uh, into Australia, which has included over 4,000 tonnes of you know, essential medical equipment, PPE, ventilators, uh, and, and more than 22 or 23 uh, deliveries of the, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. So, you know, it, it's been an incredibly busy time under incredibly trying circumstances, and it's, it's overshadowed by the fact that despite doing all that, you know, in the last financial year, we still lost $4.4 billion. So, uh, you know, and, and this quarter, uh, the first quarter that, 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 uh, that just passed, April, May and June, uh, we lost a further $409 million in that first quarter. So it has been incredibly challenging. Um, the the constant changes in jurisdictional requirements, obviously the the requirements, and not just in Australia, but that's globally as well, trying to uh, trying to adhere to all of those and make sure that we can operate in between, you know, the 50-odd destinations globally that we operate to uh, has certainly had its challenges. But what it's shown is just the absolute dedication and commitment of the team globally to be as, as agile uh, and as dynamic as possible in their operations. Yeah, and you mentioned the arrival caps obviously being one of the big challenges, you know, being limited in the number of seats you're allowed to sell on passenger flights into Australia. How many, how many pa- passengers are you actually allowed to bring in um, on each flight? So at the moment, uh, the lowest cap that we have is 10. The highest is about 44. And now that varies between states. In New South Wales at the moment, as of the 8th of September, that was further reduced uh, by 50% on top of the 50% reduction nationally that occurred on the 14th of July in response to the uh, the initial start of that Delta outbreak in New South Wales. So in Sydney, uh, the lowest is around about 12, highest about 25 on a flight. So uh, as you can imagine, when you've got aircraft that can seat 330 people, uh, only carrying between 12 and 25 people uh, means that you are heavily reliant upon having strong cargo loads uh, to support the economics of, of, of that flight. Yeah, and obviously after New South Wales further reduced their caps last week, that's um, caused quite a lot of airlines, including Singapore Airlines, to cancel flights. And Singapore Airlines was in the news earlier this week for cancelling 88 passenger flights, I believe, in total that were due to operate into Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane next month. Uh, I will note that Singapore Airlines will continue to fly double daily into Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth next month, Mm -hmm. daily into Sydney and uh, three times a week into Adelaide. But what was the reason for the cancelling those 88 flights? Was it purely because of the caps? And I guess, what would you say to passengers who had been booked to travel on those flights that are now cancelled? Look, firstly, to, to those passengers uh, who, who are out there listening, you know, we, we are incredibly sorry for the inconvenience. And, and it's, it's, it's a very difficult decision to make when we know that there is such a backlog of people still trying to get home who have spent the past 18 months trying to find uh, a pathway you know, back to back to their homeland, and you know, we we hope you're not discouraged by this. We we really do. We we are trying our, our hardest to to get more people home uh, as safely and as quickly as as we possibly can. But the the reason, Matt, for the cancellation of those flights, where those flights were uh, put on 
and scheduled uh, at the start of this year, late 2020, when there was a lot of talk around uh, the delivery of a, a potential travel bubble between Australia and Singapore, which was, you know, if you believe some reports was going to come to fruition in July, if you believed other reports, it was coming to fruition in sort of August, September. It, ultimately, the onset of the Delta uh, variant outbreak within Australia has ha- had quashed that very, very quickly. Uh, and and ultimately, what we had scheduled, which was the additional two flights a day into those ports that you mentioned, um, critically can no longer operate uh, because what we don't have is clarity around passenger arrival caps come October, November and December. So at, at the moment, as I mentioned before, you know, we're, we're capped at bringing between 10 and 44 people home. Now, if that is our, our cap on a particular flight uh, and we're only operating double daily flights in there, there are no additional caps for us to then continue to add flights to get additional caps. It's not the way it works. Uh, we're, we're ultimately, as an airline, allocated a particular weekly cap, the Department of, the Department of Infrastructure and Transport, once they get those caps from the, the state departments of health, they will allocate those out accordingly to the airlines that are operating. Uh, if we were to put on more flights, the department wouldn't necessarily give us more caps for those flights. They may uh, water down the caps they're giving for one flight to another flight. They may very well say that, well, you can maintain 30 on this particular flight, but you're going to get zero arrival caps for that flight. And so ultimately, in, until we have the clarity around whether passenger caps will continue to operate uh, for inbound travellers into Australia from October, November and December, uh, we, we can't confidently operate those flights. So we made the very difficult decision that you know, we had to cancel those. Yeah, and if um, people were booked on those flights, obviously they've um, now had their flights cancelled, is it possible to rebook them? We're trying very hard. Reaccommodation, I'm sure as you can imagine, is, is incredibly difficult because of the fact that we are at capacity for the majority of our flights into Australia over the next three months. And while we have no vision moving forward as to whether or not the caps will be increased in line with the government's national plan, it says when we hit the the phase B trigger of 70% fully vaccinated Australians at a national level and at, at the state level, those states can reintroduce the caps that were in place come uh, prior to 14 July, which, you know, in places like, you know, Melbourne, for example, that we know will hit that trigger, say, around November period or maybe late October, uh, you know, that's that's double what we're carrying at the moment. So, you know, there may be opportunity there, but we've not had any clarity around that. We've not had any clarity from New South Wales as to when the additional 50% reduction will be removed. Do we have to wait until they hit 70%? And will that just reinstate the 50% that came into effect from the 8th of September, or will it actually reinstate that 50% plus the 50% from uh, from the 14th of July cut as well. So uh, there's so much that, that we really love to get some <laughs> some answers to. And, and I'm sure the government is trying to work through all this. It, it's, it's incredibly difficult. And there are a lot of moving pieces in this puzzle and a lot of different areas to focus on. But, but critically right now, there are, you know, 40,000 people registered with DFAT to try and come home who sort of want answers just as, as desperately as, as we do. And, and we're trying our hardest to get them. Yeah, and so have you had any discussions with the Australian government or have you heard anything about their plan to reopen the borders or potentially also launch a travel bubble between Australia and Singapore? 
look, we, we know there's been some some good probably government to government talks happening, but in terms of industry engagement, it's been few and far between. There's there's been really no substantive information provided to ourselves or other airlines with regards to, you know, the government's plans as to to how they'll reopen, when they'll reopen, what the parameters will be, uh, what caps will look like, how they'll be operationalized. Um, so look, it's it's something that that hopefully uh, over the course of the last week, there's certainly been a lot more commentary about it, yes. uh, which has been really pleasing, and and it's certainly I, I think got a lot of lot more people talking, and, and hopefully over the next few weeks we'll we'll see some some really strong steps made in the right direction to getting some of that clarity clarity that the industry needs. Uh, but but as it stands, as I talk to you right now, um, I think the simple answer to that question is is not yet. Yeah. And uh, Singapore and Germany also did recently launch Travel Bubble. Has Singapore Airlines learned anything from the launch of that Travel Bubble, which they might be able to incorporate in if there's a Travel Bubble with Australia? Yeah, the vaccinated travel lane or the the VTL, because we we love a good acronym in this industry. The (laughs) the VTL uh, did launch at the start of September. uh, And from all reports that we've received, it's gone relatively well so far. And and that's a promising sign. I, I think critically, what these sorts of frameworks offer is an opportunity to learn, like you've said. But it's it's important to remember that over the last 18 months, we, we've operated to, to over 50 destinations globally, you know, operating into different jurisdictional frameworks. And in each of those frameworks, there is a learning to be had from how they have managed inbound arrival caps, how they've managed verification processes, how they've, you know, managed all a, a range of things, some of them directly related to our operations, some of them more related to airport operations, and some of them more related to, you know, government and health requirements. And I think what our position has been and has been for some time is the fact that the reopening of Australia is ultimately a decision for the Australian government. There is no denying that it's not up to airlines to tell the government how to open or when to open. That's that's really a decision that the government has to make. Our role as airlines and as an industry is to support the government in that decision-making, to give them the information, the real-world lived experience that we've had over the last 18 months so that they can make informed decisions. They can develop a framework, develop the systems, develop the protocols that can achieve three really key things. The first is that whatever framework they develop, it meets the health requirements of federal and state governments, you know, and that is critical because that's all about continuing to protect the communities that we operate into, which we have a very, very strong focus on. The second is that whatever framework is put in place can be operationalized by airlines and airports in an efficient manner. It's not cumbersome. Uh, It's going to be sustainable for the long term. It actually offers the opportunity for growth and ease of, of growth as demand slowly returns. Uh, and, and ultimately, it doesn't constrain airlines from that ability to grow their revenue in a sustainable manner as that demand comes back into the market. And, and last but not least, and, and this is really important, is that whatever framework is put in place is that it is easily understood by consumers. Mm. Because if you if you put a if you put a system in place that is is cumbersome and operationally difficult and inefficient that doesn't allow for sustainable growth, airlines are going to struggle to 
be able to actually deliver what the government wants, which is going to constrain capacity and operation and obviously then that ability to then sustainably grow that demand over a period of time as people become more comfortable to fly or more, or more people become eligible to fly. And secondly, if it is confusing to obviously the general public, what you're not going to do is you are not going to generate uh, that level of understanding as to how people can go. They'll just simply opt out if it's too confusing to try and understand what flight they can take, what you know, requirements they need to meet, uh, where they need to be and when, how they can get certain tests done, what vaccine they've had, all these sorts of questions. So th this is why we've, we've been really sort of strong in the call to say we want to support the government in the plans that they're, they're developing, if they are developing plans, and work with them to give them the guidance from, from our point of view to say what you're thinking is great, but actually in a real-world operational sense doesn't work like that or isn't viable. But we have a solution because we've seen it somewhere else that this actually works quite well and we think it would actually meet the requirements that your health and your home affairs departments are, are all requiring to meet as well. So that's the role we play. It's, it's ultimately going to be, at the end of the day, up to government to make the decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really interesting. Uh, and so when Australia does eventually reopen its borders, how quickly would Singapore Airlines be able to ramp back up operations into Australia? Well, I guess I, the, the first way I would answer that question, Matt, is, is to say that we are operating double daily services into the four key ports. Yes, Sydney is a single passenger service, but we actually have uh, two flights a day into the Sydney market. One is just a cargo only flight at the moment on a passenger aircraft. Uh, the other is a, a passenger flight. And on each of those flights, as we mentioned before, they're only carrying 10, maybe at best 12% of their load factor capability. So we already have quite a substantial amount of capacity being underutilized in yeah. the market, coming into this market already. So so ultimately, when we get the clarity that we're allowed to bring more people in and, and how we're going to verify passengers to make sure that they are suitable for uplift, uh, we can turn that inventory back on very, very quickly. The additional capacity, so whether it's additional flights coming into the market, larger aircraft, uh, well, that can also be done relatively quickly. We, we have, throughout the course of the pandemic, you know, made sure that we remain incredibly agile and nimble in our ability to deploy capacity quickly into markets where we're seeing demand start to increase. You know, we, we've continued flying throughout the pandemic, maintaining those connections that we spoke about before, you know, those more than 3,600 flights into Australia. And, and that's just Australia alone, not looking at the other destinations that we've flown to. Yeah. And so what that means is that our crew our pilots, our cabin crew, our tech crew have all maintained their recency. Our aircraft have continued to fly, you know. So we, we do have aircraft ready, our crew are ready, uh, our people are ready. So being able to ramp up our operations to meet demand is something we can do relatively quickly. Um, the question will be how quickly that demand comes back to warrant the need to launch more flights is, is another question. But, look, we would love to live in a world uh, where we wake up and realise we've got to throw two more flights onto every major city in Australia because the demand is there and people are back. I think we're still some way away from that, yeah. um, but we can all dream. Yeah, and that's obviously much better than having to remove flights. Um, <laughs> yes. Just, yeah, just finally, um, before the pandemic, Singapore Airlines was also flying uh, with passengers between Singapore and Canberra and Silcare, mm. which has now been um, uh, taken over, I guess, or merged in with Singapore Airlines, also was flying to Darwin and Cairns. Um, mm -hmm. Are there any plans to reinstate Singapore Airlines flights to those destinations when the borders are open? So Canberra first. Um, you know, Canberra, look, I, I actually... I 
semi grew up in in Canberra, so it has a very close sort of place in in my heart. And uh, it was one of the first major announcements in my career with SQ uh, when I joined uh, that I was involved in. So it was it was a very um, sad day when we had to uh, close down uh, the Canberra station. I, I think in the first instance, as recovery occurs. Um, sending flights back into Canberra in the near term is probably not something that will be considered, but we never say never. I think critically one of the things that we have come to embrace and, and really understand uh, over the course of the last you know, 18 months of pandemic operations is the fact that you just have to be open to anything. And, and critically, you have to be able to adapt uh, and move very quickly to capture demand in the market as it as it comes back. So I can't say that it's on the radar and I can't make any firm promises about Canberra outside of saying that we'll always keep one eye open to, to see where we can redeploy capacity to, to maximise and meet the demand uh, that's in the market. In terms of Cairns and, and Darwin, uh, we've continued to operate to Cairns on a weekly basis with uh, with a passenger aircraft carrying cargo only uh, to support the market in Cairns. So that still remains a destination, obviously. Uh, again, it's similar to Darwin, similar to Cairns. It's just going to be a case of, of when the demand warrants to reinstate capacity into those markets. Now, if demand returns really quickly, we have the capability of, of deploying aircraft really quickly into those markets to meet that demand. Um, but again, we, we just have to wait and see. And, and, you know, I know it sounds repetitive to say this, but we, we really are at the present point in time driven by demand. You know, that is that is the the ultimate goal for us at the moment is to make sure that we are putting capacity into markets where the demand is to support that travel to occur. So, um you know, if that means uh, if that means that it comes back in a month, that's great. If it comes back in a year, okay. If it takes more than that, well, so be it. But again, you know, we, we're very agile and very nimble in our ability to to get back into markets where uh, where the need warrants. Well, fingers crossed that Singapore Airlines will be able to fly full planes back into cities all over Australia very soon. Carl Shiv, thanks so much for your time today. Matt, a real pleasure. Take care. And that's all for this episode of AFF On Air. Thanks again to my guest, Carl Schubert from Singapore Airlines. And thank you very much for listening. For more information about anything discussed in today's episode, check out the episode notes. Here you'll also find a link to the AFF On Air discussion thread on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum, where you're welcome to discuss the podcast or ask me a question to be answered in a future episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd take just a minute to review AFF On Air on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform to receive every episode as soon as it's released. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, safe travels. Listener.